I'd returned to school to finish a degree that I'd abandoned several years prior to that. Uh, and I was sitting in the theater assisting with the production of this cool production of The Tempest. And I was sitting at the back of the theater listening to lines being read and I was coughing. And it wouldn't stop. No matter how many cough candies I took or how many sips of water, it was just this little tickle that wouldn't go away. It wouldn't be dismissed. So after a couple of weeks when it hadn't gone away, my partner noticed and said, you know, maybe we should see a doctor about this. So in January, uh, actually, yeah, in early January of 2006, I made an appointment to see the doctor, was prescribed antibiotics, uh, but still the cough didn't go away. So at the doctor's insistence that I have some blood work done, uh, near my birthday in 2006 in February, I went and had some blood work done, and two weeks later I received a phone call uh, with the results of that blood work. And at that point, the doctor asked me, am I sitting down? And until that point, I hadn't thought that the results would be as serious as what they sounded in that moment. And in the next moment, he said, you're HIV positive. Welcome to Health Stories. In this podcast, we invite you to hear the stories from patients, clinicians, caregivers, and loved ones as they offer tips and insights for navigating our healthcare system. I'm Dr. Nicole Deffenbaugh, Clinical Communications Specialist, and I'm here today, Steve Ryder, who is a PhD candidate at University of South Florida, uh, and he is a relational communication researcher whose uh, focus is on narratives of health. And today he's going to ask, who are we because of HIV? So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me, Nicole. Delighted to have you on here. So, so you get a phone call, which is interesting, that you got um, a diagnosis over the phone. So the clinician says to you, have a seat, or are you sitting down? And then what, does, uh, what do they say next? Well, it was, it was pretty matter of fact, or right to the point. Uh, I'd known this uh, doctor for many, many years. And uh, normally an HIV diagnosis would not be disclosed via the phone. And so I was not expecting it, but I was appreciative of the, the uh, frankness of the conversation. He just got right to the point and said, unfortunately, you're HIV positive. And want to, so there's a lot that we're going to, you know, kind of dive into and, and talk about for this podcast, because I think there's so many, um, not only stereotypes, but unknowns about HIV um, in, in our community and specifically here in the U.S. Um, in, in other words, did it ever dawn on you when you were sick, because you had mentioned in the introduction you were coughing and sick for a long time, did it ever dawn on you that this might be your diagnosis? No, it didn't. Uh, and that's kind of interesting in itself because I had expected HIV to manifest in any way but a simple cough. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have subsequently become a lot more educated uh, I know growing up in the 1980s, when I first left home to go to university, HIV was a very pressing concern. When I first became sexually active, uh, it was often talked about in terms of contacts and who to sleep with and who not to sleep with and why. Uh, but there was a general pervasive paranoia about 
people who were dying. I lost many friends in, in those university days in the 80s mm. um, to HIV. Uh, but the thing is that HIV doesn't look the same way that it did back then. Mm. Uh, you don't see bodies walking down the street that look emaciated like I was when I got my diagnosis. You, you generally don't see that. It's hidden uh, because we have really great medications that work really well to maintain that at least semblance of what passes for normal health. Mm-hmm. And so is there, and I appreciate kind of going back into the, the history, because I think for some people we still have this idea, these images, because they were so stark and it was in the news everywhere about HIV and the epidemic, and there's been a lot less of attention, especially the media, on it today. And so I think in some ways, um, you know, perhaps we've almost forgotten about it because it's seen more as a chronic illness that can be treated. And there were some recent studies even talking about how two individuals were quote-unquote cured from it and so it it looks different and we think of it differently now well i certainly think of it differently as a result of of it being inside my body rather than outside uh, but i think that the general public shouldn't be think you know anybody who's sexually active should be thinking about hiv it's just it's part of the landscape um, it's not going away it's still very much an infectious uh, illness. So if you're not using protection or mitigating your risk, uh, you you could be infected. And the problem, I think, is that when people aren't having HIV on their radar, they're sexually active and not thinking about it, they run the risk of being infected and passing it on before they get their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What are some, um, curious, because you had mentioned a partner, um, and what was that conversation like after your diagnosis? That's um, that's a that's a good question. The conversation was uh, joyous, one of acceptance, unabashed acceptance and love. I I don't think there were a lot of words. There was a lot of physical contact and um, an extended hug and whispering in the ear. Um, it, it felt, uh, I felt very supported in that moment that I wasn't going to have to deal with this illness alone, which I think is um, a blessing. Many people, I think, don't have that, don't have that contact or, or the context of a partner who understands and, and wants to support. So I'm thankful for that. Wow. I, I'll admit that was not the reaction I was expecting that you were going to say. And when we think about sexually transmitted infections, so STIs, um, I know in the past when there was any sort of question, you know, a doctor would say, you know, do you want to get an STI infection? Do you, do you know your partner? Do you trust your partner? There's, there's some sense of distrust and secrecy, and it's not always necessarily a good thing um, in, in that we don't necessarily get regular testing as opposed to only when you think that there's something wrong or only when you have suspicion. Um, and so I guess what I was really asking is, was there any sort of distrust or suspicion um, on either part of um, that conversation? No, I don't think so. Uh, my partner and I have an open relationship. We've been together for a very long time at this point, 30 years. And, uh, you know, sometimes the relationship is closed, sometimes it's open. 
which means that we sometimes see other people. Mm-hmm. But we we always discuss, you know, before, during, and after, uh, you know, what our needs and desires are, and how we're going to enact those um, those hopes and aspirations without injuring what we share. Uh, we have a deep respect for each other, and uh, we will continue to do so. Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm interested in this area is because as a as a gay man, I came out in the early 1980s when HIV was uh, the big illness, the big ticket item. Uh, every news article was covering HIV in some shape or form. Uh, I was concerned about my own health, but also about the health of my community at large. Uh, the gay community has taken um, or has bared the brunt of, of more than enough of, of the cases of HIV. It's disproportionately uh, represented with, within our community. Um, I think as many as 80% of HIV infections are within the uh, MSM community, men who have sex with men community, or um, people who don't necessarily identify as gay, but do have male partners, are male and have male partners. Mm-hmm. Um, the incidence of HIV is alarmingly um, high, especially in the southern U.S. Where I study in Tampa, um, Tampa is a hot spot, Atlanta is a hot spot, Miami is a hot spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in a time where we have medication available, um, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, a, a once-a-day pill that you take to greatly reduce your risk of, of getting an infection. Uh, getting an infection of HIV uh, is widely available, and yet we still have instances where people um, are getting infected. I do know, so, so having... Um because I just taught this in my class about HIV diagnosis, that it's really on the rise specifically for African Americans. It was a study 2009 through 2014, and they were saying um, amongst transgendered women, it was like 51% uh, was African American and 58% for transgendered men. And so it they were talking not just, um, you know, when we think LGBTQ community, it was specifically to individuals who identify as transgendered, and they gave the intersectionality of HIV, um, also recognizing race and ethnicity, you know, and so I think, um, you know, for me, when I think back to the 1980s, I think of a white gay man. Sure. I think in the 1980s, the poster child for HIV was Rock Hudson. Right. He came out with his diagnosis in 1985. That yeah. was kind of a watershed moment. Like, how could this good-looking, handsome, uh, masculine-sounding um, man be uh, be a faggot, be gay, be anything but heterosexual? Um, and how, and yet, yeah, and then how could he have AIDS? Uh, that was a watershed moment. Uh, but now. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to put my finger on it. I mean, I don't have research at my fingertips right now, but I would say that because we have things like trans identity being more talked about, uh, we have that label to um, orient towards. I'm using kind of Sarah Ahmed's um, 
notion of orientation. Mm. So once we see something, we can orient to or orient away from it. So if it interests us, we turn toward it. If it doesn't, we turn away. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think now we have a landscape where people are recognizing that sexuality is perhaps a little bit more fluid than it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, that people can find different identities and different ways of being that are still within their relative comfort. And I, I think, you know, those explorations um, are, are on the cutting edge, if you will, uh, that we're still navigating some of those things. I mean, I, I'm still navigating my own identity in terms of a gay man, like living with HIV, am, am I... How can I be all of these things at once? Student, husband, partner, um, scholar. Um, you know, how do how do you reconcile all of that, all of those things into one label that communicates effectively who and what we are, uh, not only to ourselves but to other people? Yeah, um, and and also thinking of HIV too, um, growing in the 65 and older communities as well, you know, so thinking about how it really does touch everybody and, and different people in different communities and, and something we need to talk about, which is why you're here today on the podcast. So um, before we get into the clinical, um, your encounters in the medical community, um, I do want to ask you a little bit about um, your treatment because you had mentioned that and thinking about what types of medications you take and um, how that impacts your relationship and also your partner. Sure. Well, the medication that I'm on has changed over time. I've, you know, since my diagnosis 14 years ago, um, initially I, I had quite a, a regimen of pills, and uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, suffice to say that. The pills that I take, I have a once-a-day pill that I take. It's mm. fairly expensive. It's about seventeen hundred Canadian a month. Wow. Uh, so you're looking at about fifty bucks a day. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, that same medication prescribed in Tampa is about thirty-three hundred U.S. So oh, wow. more than, more than double. And is your partner on anything? Uh, no, he's not. He's actually HIV negative. Okay. And is that something that um, is followed or tracked or, you know, does he get tested um, still or, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, he gets tested fairly regularly because I test way more frequently than he does. I Pretty much every time I have lab work done, I'm, I'm being, you know, there's a full battery of, of blood tests. So right. if you ever think about getting HIV, you want to make sure that you really like needles because you'll be seeing a lot of them. Mm. Uh, so I have that uh, done regularly and uh, you know for for the first few months when I initially started treatment I had a high viral load mm. but after the first few months of treatment I was very responsive to treatment and my viral load has been undetectable ever since mm. and in current under the current scientific um, understanding once you you reach that undetectable level of viral load, you're essentially non-transmission, non-transmittable. Oh, okay. You can't actually pass on HIV. Okay. Um, nonetheless, uh, condoms are still very much uh, a mainstay of sexual practice. Uh, 
Okay. So I want to get into a little bit of your clinical experience um, and kind of transition to that section. Um, you had told us about the diagnosis from the clinician, and I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners um, some stories of what it's been like um, going through the U.S. healthcare system um, with an HIV diagnosis, sort of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, initially that phone call, I thought very highly of the phone call. In some senses, it maybe was a breach of protocol that, you know, normally an HIV diagnosis is delivered in person for the reason being that you want to see how the person is reacting. Right. Uh, you know, if, the, if there's an adverse reaction or if the person is, you know, uh, not dealing well with this news at all, that you can provide some support uh, in the context of that diagnosis being delivered. Um, in my particular case, I respected that uh, I didn't have to schlep across town to receive this really bad news alone in the doctor's office. I got to be with my partner and receive this news. So, you know, in this particular instance, it worked out in my favor. Mm. Um, I was subsequently referred to a specialist in my area because my general practitioner does not um, specialize in HIV medicine. So that practitioner as well, who I'd seen for probably the last 14 years, was really great. I mean, my initial diagnosis uh, meant uh, I had to spend some time in hospital. So initially, I was hospitalized in intensive care uh, until they could find out, you know, what what this cough was that I was experiencing. Okay. Yeah. So I had a bronchoscopy in ICU, and I was in ICU for four days, um, sort of getting those immediate concerns taken care of. Uh, but then when I was trans, uh, transferred to another hospital to get well, my uh, specialist, uh, uh, we had a phone conversation because I, I had expressed to a nurse that I just couldn't stay in the hospital. I just felt like this place wasn't going to get me well, and I wanted to be home. Um, so here I was four days after um, you know, being being in ICU for four days, and then on the first day in the hospital, I hadn't even undressed. I was sitting on my bed and just um, saying, no, I, I couldn't stay here. Um, so I had a conversation with my specialist on the phone, and he said, you know, it's against my medical uh, advice, but uh, if you wish to sign yourself out of hospital, you're, you can do so. But I would advise against it just because the medications that you're taking right now are really complicated, and they need to be mm -hmm. taken in a certain order and at certain times of the day and I said you know listen I I really need my agency at this point if I'm going to get well it's because I need to get well mm -hmm. not because other people are going to help me to get well you know appreciate that the collaboration toward good health but I need to do this and so I checked myself out of hospital and the medication there I think there were three or four different things that I was taking at the time uh, one was um, to prevent pneumonia because of my weakened immune system. Um, my T4 cell count at that point was in the, I think 45. Mm -hmm. So anything below wow. 200, it's yeah. considered a clinical diagnosis of AIDS. So technically I do have AIDS because my CD4 count dropped below 200 at any point. Oh, okay. Um, so sometimes when I want shock value, I'll say, yeah, I have AIDS. Mm -hmm. um, other times it's just, I have trouble identifying as somebody who is HIV because I feel normal, quote unquote, most of the time. Right, and you no longer have 
AIDS, you, you had it because you were below the definition because you had below 200, but now you don't. So is that why you, you identify as HIV instead of AIDS? Well, the, the funny thing is, according to the CDC, once you drop below that, two, that magical 200 number threshold, you're, you're considered to have the clinical uh, stage of HIV progression called AIDS. Mm-hmm. And so you never oh. shirk that label as far as the CDC is concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many, many medical practitioners will use that label. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more widely, I think people just refer to it as HIV now. Uh, okay. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's kind of, it's a contentious relationship, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it comes down to, you know, the, the identity and labels we're given we are given by the healthcare system versus the labels and identities that we give ourselves. And they don't always have to, to match. So. so I want to transition to the last part of the podcast, which is really the advocacy and, and sort of steps for others who are listening. It sounds like you're not only an advocate for yourself, but you do a lot of talks in the community too, and, and you're an advocate for, for others. What is some advice that you would offer both for people who are newly diagnosed um, and also for people who, um, actually three, newly diagnosed, those who have had it like yourself for a long time, and then partners of somebody who may be diagnosed. So what advice and wisdom can you provide? Yeah, I think those four, uh, or those three points are really important, but I think there's a fourth one as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if you're newly diagnosed, I would say uh, your life might be changing in ways that you m- might be grappling with in the moment. Uh, don't forget to breathe and um, know that you're not alone. There's lots of other people in the world that have HIV, and you might think that you're, you know, because of because of this illness that you're unfuckable. If I can say that, mm-hmm. okay. um, you know, you're not lovable. That you're not um, worthy of being loved, but lots of people are, are still going to continue to love you. Um, in terms of partners, I think it's important to be open and honest. I'm lucky to have a partner that we've we've built our relationship on openness and responsibility and honesty. Uh, we predicate our being together on you know those those that bedrock. And so it's been important for us to discuss. And and sure, there have been times when he's been uncomfortable um, in the bedroom. Uh, There are times when he's just been uncomfortable with, you know, how much energy I might have had in any given moment or that I needed to be at home rather than going out or just generally tired. Um, Those are things that, you know, are better discussed than to let linger and magnify because they will eat away at the fabric of your relationship if you don't address them. Um, in terms of um, you know ongoing health, uh, I think you know for me I, I need to have responsibility for my health. I, I know my body better than anybody. I'm living in it and I'm listening to it uh, on an hourly basis. Uh, sometimes even more frequently when certain things arise, like bowel movements, I know is a favorite topic, but (laughs) when you're on HIV medication, one of my uh, friends jokes that uh, 
you're you're very brave wearing white pants. Um, I've never had an accident, but I know that they can happen. So um, you do need to be prepared sometimes for the way that your body will change uh, with HIV. Um, but it's not it's not a hopeless reality. I feel pretty comfortable in my own skin. I know a lot of people are HIV positive. My circle of friends. Um, I was with a party uh, at a party with my partner a, f- a few months ago, and it it was kind of funny that everyone in the room except my partner was HIV positive, yeah. uh, and that was pretty. Um, I was blown away by that. Um, it's it's sad, but also there's a sense of community that comes out of that that space. Yeah, um, Steve. What was the fourth? Because we talked about new partner continuing diagnosis chronic and you said there was a fourth yeah the fourth one is really important i think many people like myself when um, they're dealing with hiv or not dealing with hiv as i wasn't in 2005 uh, living in denial is not a way to go Uh, if you are sexually active and whether or not you're using condoms, uh, whether or not you know the status of your partner or your own status, I think you need to think about seriously getting tested uh, because getting a diagnosis sooner rather than later potentially uh, mitigates or um, completely eliminates passing on the virus to somebody else, Mm -hmm. which is really important. So if you don't know your status, I think it's really that's a really important thing. Um, when I think about my own journey uh, from 2005 forward, uh, and especially since my diagnosis happened after the um, widespread availability of HEART, which is the um, medication uh, to combat HIV, I, I still shudder to think that a good friend of mine who I call Dexter in my dissertation as I'm writing uh, passed away because he did not want to get tested. He didn't want to know whether he was HIV positive or not. Mm. And a friend found him slumped over in a chair in his apartment after being dead for several days. Mm. Uh, he didn't want to get tested, but you know, I could have been Dexter. I could have chosen not to be tested and to just continue to ignore this cough that would slowly um, you know, turning into other things. You know, I'd lost uh, 25 pounds at that point, and on a 145 pound frame, six foot one, um, that's that's pretty slight. You know, I was moments from expiring completely. Mm. So I would say to people who don't know their HIV status, you owe it to yourself to go and get tested, just so that you know, uh, and how you can, you know, then you'll know what what you need to do as a next step, whether you. Uh, seek out treatment or talk to somebody or uh, at least don't pass it on to somebody else. Yeah. Wonderful advice. And I'm thinking in terms of those who are listening, do you have any suggestions of places to go? So they may have just been diagnosed and feeling, you know, that they're alone. You you have a community, but I know given many reasons, um, one being rural, you know, if people don't have a support system, are there places online or, or places you suggest that they look up? One of the first places I turn to, because I'm I'm not exactly in a rural area, but 
you know, where I spend most of my time is about an hour from a major metropolitan area. And so there aren't a lot of um, social or health related resources for gay men in my area. Mm -hmm. And so when I was first diagnosed, I actually turned to an online forum called POSMEDS, P-O-Z-M-E-D-S dot com. And I found a lot of people from across the world, but mostly from within the United States, talking about HIV very frankly. Um, And it was just nice to know that there were people going through the same things that I was doing, like, what do I need to eat? Um, Mm -hmm. What do I do with um, having bowel movements all the time? What do I do with um, non-adherence to medication or I missed a dose? You know, so Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of rudimentary questions that you're going to likely face in those first few months or so um, after diagnosis, like, is it the end of the world for me? Uh, Will I find love again? Uh, How do I tell my partner? How do I tell family? Uh, Should I come out at work? Like, those are really all still very prescient questions. Yeah. So the, the, the question that I have for you is, what does your future look like? And I say that not only thinking about the prognosis that you've received in the clinical community, but more importantly, what does your outlook look like? And I think that might be helpful for people to hear. Sure. Uh, I've generally been a a positive, pardon the pun, kind of guy. And, um, you know, my glass is always half full, if not more than half full. Um, So even if you don't, have that kind of outlook on life um, you know try to find the good um, I think of my HIV as kind of like the baby on board uh, it doesn't always talk to me and I don't always talk to it because that would be kind of neurotic but um, it does inform who I am and uh, how I manage to get through the world but I'm uh, still very much Uh, have hopes and dreams for the future just like anybody else might. I'm hoping to finish my doctorate work and find a job in academia, if not doing something in government or research related to HIV and relational responsibility um, for illness and how we view illness, especially, you know, how we perform a healthy body or how we perform an ill body. Uh, so I'm really interested in those kinds of things, but also I'm very hopeful and optimistic about what the future has in store for, for me as well as other people that I know. Wonderful words to end by. So thank you so much, Steve, for being on the podcast today. It's been wonderful having you. Thanks, Nicole. I appreciate it very much being here. And for those of you who are listening, we remind you to like us on Facebook. We are at Health Stories Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Stories Health, and there's a blog, nicoledeffenbaugh.com slash blog. And feel free to leave comments. Let us know if you're interested in being in the, on the podcast. And we invite you to join us again next week. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh for Health Stories.